Chapter Fifteen of A Red Wallflower by Susan Warner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Red Wallflower by Susan Warner. Chapter Fifteen Comfort. Those letters, on the whole, did not comfort Esther. The momentary intense pleasure was followed by inevitable dull reaction and contrast, and before she had well got over the effect of one batch of letters, another came, and she was kept in a perpetual stir and conflict. For Pitt proved himself a good correspondent, although it was June before the first letter from his parents reached him. So he reported, writing on the third of that month, and told that the Allied sovereigns were just then leaving Paris for a visit to the British capital, and all the London world was on tiptoe. "'Great luck for me to be here just now,' he wrote, and so everybody at home agreed. Mrs. Dallas grew more stately, Esther thought, with every visit she made at the Colonel's house, and she and her husband made many. It was a necessity to have someone to speak to about Pitt and Pitt's letters— and it was urgent likewise that Mrs. Dallas should know if letters had been received by the same mail at this other house. She always found out, one way or another, and then she would ask, "'May I see?' and scan with eager eyes the sheet the colonel generally granted her. Of the letters to Esther nothing was said, but Esther lived in fear and trembling that some inadvertent word might let her know of their existence." Another necessity which brought the Dallases often to Colonel Gainsborough's was the political situation. They could hardly discuss it with anybody else in Seaforth, and what is the use of a political situation if you cannot discuss it? All the rest of the families in the neighborhood were strong Americans, and even Pitt, in his letters, was more of an American than anything else. Indeed, so much more that it gave his mother sad annoyance. He told of the temper of the English people at this juncture— of the demands to be made by the English government before they would hear of peace, of a strong force sent to Canada, and the general indignant and belligerent tone of feeling and speech among members of Parliament. But Pitt did not write as if he sympathized with it. "'He has lived here too long already,' sighed his mother. "'Not if he is destined to live here the rest of his life, my dear madame,' said the colonel. "'He will not do that. He will end by settling in England.' Will may have his own views on that as on some other things. By the time he has gone through the university and studied for his profession, he will be more of an Englishman than an American, Mr. Dallas observed contentedly. He will choose for himself. What profession? Have you fixed upon one, or has he? Time enough yet for that. But your property lies here. I am here to take care of it, said Mr. Dallas, laughing a little. All this sort of talk, which Esther heard often with variations, made one thing clear to her, namely that if it depended on his father and mother, Pitt's return to his native country would be long delayed or finally prevented. It did not entirely depend on them, everybody knew who knew him. Nevertheless, it seemed to Esther that the fascinations of the old world must be great, and the feeling of the distance between her and Pitt grew with every letter. It was not the fault of the letters, or of the writer in any way, nor was it the effect the latter were intended to produce, but Esther grew more and more despondent about him, and then after a few months the letters became short and rare. 
Pitt had gone to Oxford, and from the time of his entering the university, plunged head and ears into business, so eagerly that time and disposition failed for writing home. Letters did come from time to time, but there was much less in them, and those for Colonel Gainsborough were at long intervals. So when the second winter of Pitt's absence began to set in, Esther reckoned him, to all intents and purposes, lost to her life. The girl went with increased eagerness and intentness to the one resource she had, her Bible. The cry for happiness is so natural to the human heart that it takes long oppression to stifle it. The cry was strong in Esther's young nature, strong and imperative, and in all the world around her she saw no promise of help or supply. The spring at which she had slaked her thirst was dried up. The desert was as barren to her eye as it had been to Hagar's. But, unlike Hagar, she sought with a sort of desperate eagerness in one quarter where she believed water might be found. When people search in that way, unless they get discouraged, their search is apt to come to something. Unless, indeed, they are going after a mirage, and it was no mirage that hovered before Esther. No vision of anything, indeed. She was searching into the meaning of a promise. And, as I said, nobody knew nobody helped her. The months of that winter rolled slowly and gloomily over her. Esther was between fourteen and fifteen now, her mind just opening to a consciousness of its powers and a growing dawn of its possibilities. Life was unfolding, not its meaning, but something of its extent and richness to her. Less than ever could she content herself to have it a desert. The study went on, all through the winter with no visible change or result. But with the breaking spring the darkness and ice-bound state of Esther's mind seemed to break up too. Another look came into the girl's face, a high, quiet calm, a light like the light of the spring itself, so gracious and tender and sweet. Esther was changed. The duties which she had done all along with a dull punctuality were done now with a certain blessed alacrity. Her eye got its life of expression again, and a smile more sweet than any former ones came readily to the lips. I do not think the colonel noticed all this, or if he noticed at all, he simply thought Esther was glad of the change of season. The winter, to be sure, had kept her very much shut up. The servants were more observing. "'Do you know we're a-going to have a beauty in this year house?' inquired Christopher one evening of his sister, with a look of sly search, as if to see whether she knew it. "'Are we?' asked the housekeeper. "'A beauty, and no mistake. Why, Sarah, can't you see it?' "'I sees all there is to see in the family,' the housekeeper returned with a superior air. "'Then you see that. She's grown and changed uncommon within a year.' "'She's a very sweet young lady,' Mrs. Barker agreed. "'And she's going to be a stunner for looks,' Christopher repeated, with that same sly observation of his sister's face. "'She'll be better looking than ever her mother was.' "'Mrs. Gainsborough was a handsome woman, too,' said the housekeeper. "'But Miss Esther's very promising. "'You're right there. She's very promising. "'She's just beginning to show what she will be. "'She's got over her dumps lately uncommon.' I judge the dumps was natural enough, situated as she is, but she's come out of em. She's opening up like a white camellia, and there ain't anything that grows that has less shadow to it. 
Though maybe it ain't what you'd call a gay flower, added Christopher thoughtfully. Is that them stiff white flowers as has no smell to em? The same, Mrs. Barker, if you mean what I mean. Then I wouldn't like Miss Astor to know sitch. She's sweet, she is, and she ain't no way stiff. She has just what I call the manners a young lady ought to have. Can't beat a white camellia for manners, responded Christopher jocularly. So the servants saw what the father did not. I think he hardly even knew that Esther was growing taller. One evening in the spring, Esther was, as usual, making tea for her father. As usual, also, the tea-time was very silent. The colonel sometimes carried on his reading alongside of his teacup. At other times, perhaps, he pondered what he had been reading. "'Papa,' said Esther suddenly, "'would it be any harm if I wrote a letter to Pitt?' The colonel did not answer at once. "'Do you want to write to him?' "'Yes, Papa. I would like it. I would like to write once.' "'What do you want to write to him for?' "'I would like to tell him something that I think it would please him to hear.' "'What is that?' "'It is just something about myself, Papa,' Esther said, a little hesitatingly. "'You may write, and I will enclose it in a letter of mine. "'Thank you, Papa.' "'A day or two passed, and then Esther brought her letter. "'It was closed and sealed. "'The colonel took it and turned it over. "'There's a good deal of it,' he remarked. "'Was it needful to use so many words?' "'Papa,' said Esther, hesitating, "'I didn't think about how many words I was using.' "'You should have had thinner paper. "'Why did you seal it up?' "'Papa, I didn't think about that either. "'I only thought it had got to be sealed.' "'You did not wish to hinder my seeing what you had written?' "'No, Papa,' said Esther, a little slowly. "'That will do.' And he laid the letter on one side, and Esther supposed the matter was disposed of. But when she had kissed him and gone off to bed, the colonel brought the letter before him again, looked at it, and finally broke the seal and opened it. There was a good deal of it, as he had remarked. Seaforth, May 11, 1815 My dear Pitt, Papa has given me leave to write a letter to you, and I wanted to write, because I have something to tell you that I think you will be glad to hear. I am afraid I cannot tell it very well, for I am not much accustomed to writing letters, but I will do as well as I can. I'm afraid it will take me some time to say what I want to say. I cannot put it in two or three sentences. You must have patience with me. Do you remember my telling you once that I wanted comfort? And do you remember my asking you once about the meaning of some words in the Bible where I was looking for comfort, because Mamma said it was the best place? We were sitting in the veranda one afternoon, you had been away to New Haven, and were home for vacation. Well, I partly forgot about it that summer. I was so happy. You know what a good time we had with everything, and I forgot about wanting comfort. But after you went away that autumn to Lisbon, and then to England, then the want came back. You were very good about writing, and I enjoyed your letters very much, and yet, somehow— Every one seemed to make me feel a little worse than I did before. That is, after the first bit, you know. For an hour, perhaps, while I was reading it, and reading it the second time, and thinking about it, I was almost perfectly happy. The letters seemed to bring you near, 
but when just that first hour was past, they made you seem farther off than ever, farther off every time, and then the want of comfort came back, and I did not know where to get it. There was nobody to ask, and no help at all, if I could not find it in the Bible. All that winter, and all the summer, last summer that was, and all the first part of this winter, I did not know what to do. I wanted comfort so. I thought maybe you would never come back to Seaforth again, and you know there is nobody else here, and I was quite alone. I never do see anybody but Papa, except Mr. and Mrs. Dallas, who come here once in a while. So I went to the Bible. I read, and I thought. Do you remember those words I once asked you about? Perhaps you do not, so I will write them down here. The Lord make his face shine upon thee, and be gracious to thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee, and give thee peace. Those are the words. Do you remember what you said at that time, about the pleasure of seeing a face that looks brightly and kindly upon one? Only you did not know how that could be true of God, because we cannot really see his face. Well, I thought a great deal about that. You see, there are the words, and so I thought the thing must be possible somehow, and there must be some way in which they can be true, or the Bible would not say so. I began to pray that the Lord would make his face shine upon me. Then I remembered another thing. It is only the faces we love that we care about seeing. I mean, that we care about so very much. And it is only the faces that love us that can shine upon us. But I did not love God, for I did not know him. And I knew he could not love me, for he knew me too well. So I began to pray a different prayer. I asked that God would teach me to love him, and make me such a person that he could love me. It was all very dark and confused before my mind. I think I was like a person groping about and feeling for things he cannot see. It was very miserable, for I had no comfort at all, and the days and the nights were all sad and dark. Only I kept a little bit of hope. Then I must tell you another thing. I had been doing nothing but praying and reading the Bible. But one day I came to these words, which struck me very much. There in the fourteenth chapter of John. He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Do you notice those last words? That is like making the face shine, or lifting up the countenance upon a person. But then I saw that to get that which I wanted, I must keep his commandments. I hardly knew what they were, and I began to read to find out. I had only been looking for comfort before, and as fast as I found out one of his commandments, I began to do it, as far as I could. Pitt, his commandments are such beautiful things. And then, I don't know how it came or when it came exactly, but I began to see his face, and it began to shine upon me, and the darkness began to go away. And now, Pitt, this is what I wanted to tell you. I have found comfort. 
I am not dark, and I don't feel alone any more. The promise is all true. I think he has manifested himself to me, for I'm sure I know him a little, and I love him a great deal, and everything seems changed. It is so changed, Pitt. I am happy now, and contented, and things seem beautiful to me again, as they used to do when you were here, only even more, I think. I thought you would be glad to know it, and so I've written all this long letter, and my fingers are really tired. Your loving friend, Esther Gainsborough. The colonel read this somewhat peculiar document with wondering attention. He got to the end, and began again, with his mind in a great deal of confusion. A second reading left him more confused than the first, and he began the third time. What did Esther mean by this want of comfort? How could she want comfort? And what was this strange thing that she had found? And how came she to be pouring out her mind in this fashion to Pitt, to him of all people? The colonel was half touched, half jealous, half awed. What had his child learned in her strange, solitary Bible study? He had heard of religious ecstasies and religious enthusiasts, devotees, people set apart by a singular experience. Was his Esther possibly going to be anything like that? He did not wish it. He wanted her certainly to be a good woman, and a religious woman. He did not want her to be extravagant. And this sounded extravagant, even visionary. How had she got it? What had Pitt Dallas to do with it? Was it for want of him that Esther had set up such a cry for comfort? The colonel liked nothing of all the questions that started up in his mind, and the only satisfactory thing was that, in some way, Esther seemed to be feeling happy. But her father did not want her to be given over to a visionary happiness, which in the end would desert her. He sat up a long time, reading and brooding over the letter. Finally, he closed it and sealed it again, and resolved to let it go off, and to have a talk with his daughter. End of chapter 15 Recording by Hannah Mary